Before I was even into my teens, I knew exactly what I wanted to be when I grew up. My goal was to be the greatest athlete that ever lived. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. On June 26, 1911, Mildred Ella Didrikson, later to become known worldwide as Babe Didrikson and later as Babe Didrikson Zaharias, was born. To mark this occasion, this is a bonus edition of True to the Goats. What you'll hear is a collection of excerpts from Babe's autobiography, This Life I Have Led, as read by Rachel Wong. These excerpts helped comprise episode four of True to the Goats, entitled The Other Babe. The excerpts run chronologically, from her early days in AAU basketball in the late 1920s, to her domination at the 1932 Olympic Trials at Los Angeles Olympics, to a golf career which is certainly still among the greatest ever and features a comeback after battling cancer. It is the story of a truly great 20th century athlete. Happy birthday, babe. You never saw anybody more excited than I was that night at the railroad station in Beaumont, Texas, back in February 1930. Here I was, just a little old high school girl, wanting to be a big athlete. And now, I was getting a chance to go with an insurance company in Dallas and play on their basketball team in the Women's National Championships. It was an overnight sleeper trip to Dallas, about 275 miles from Beaumont. To me, that was like going to Europe. I'd never been more than a few miles away from my home in my life. Now, I bet I've traveled a couple million miles since then, competing all around the United States and in other parts of the world, but that first trip was the start of everything. Even then, I had other ideas besides playing basketball. I wanted to be in the Olympic Games, and after that, I wanted to be a golf star. One thing sort of led to another. I got to be an Olympic champion and win all the most important women's golf tournaments and do a lot of other things. It didn't all go along as smooth as that sounds. I wanted to spend my life in sports, but I had to make money too. And that isn't so easy for a woman athlete. Colonel McCombs met us with his car at the station. He had one of the basketball girls with him, Leona Thaxton. She was a big guard. We drove to the company's offices in the interurban building. I remember that we went to room 327. That's where Colonel McCombs' department was. Practically all the basketball players worked there. I guess that was to make it easier to round them all up and take off when there was a basketball trip. I'd never seen so many large girls, large feet and large hands. They were really husky. That was a gray era of women's athletics. Nowadays, the big sports for women are tennis, fancy diving, swimming, and golf. And those are the best sports for women. Some of the others are really too strenuous for girls. But back there in the 30s, they made a big thing out of sports like women's basketball. Colonel McCombs introduced me to all the girls. One of them, Lalia Warren, said, what position do you think you're going to play? So I got a little pepped up there and I said, well, what do you play? She said, I'm the star forward. And I said, well, that's what I want to be. And that's how it worked out too. 
One Saturday morning at the office early in summer 1930, he said to me, Babe, what are you going to do to occupy yourself now that the basketball season's over? I told him I wasn't doing anything much. He said, Well, how would you like to go out to Lakeside Park with me this afternoon and watch a track meet? Here I'd been thinking about the Olympic Games since 1928, and yet I never had seen a track meet. So I went out there with him, and we stood around watching. I saw this stick lying on the ground, and I said, What's that? And Colonel McComb said, It's a javelin. You throw it like a spear. Boy, did I get excited. He went through the motions for me, and I picked it up, and I tried it. I got pretty good distance, but it was so heavy, it was a man's javelin, that I slapped my back with it as I threw it. And it raised a great big welt. Four times I slapped myself on exactly the same spot, and that welt was really big. Colonel McCombs took me around and explained some of the other events. He showed me the high jump and the hurdles and stuff like that. Those hurdles reminded me of all the hedge jumping I'd done back home. I liked the looks of that event better than almost anything else. By the time we left, Colonel McCombs was agreeing with me that it would be a good idea if employers' casualty had a women's track and field team so the girls would have some good athletics during the summer. I'm sure that's what he had in mind all along. Later, we all got together and started talking about this track team and how we were going to organize. One girl said, I'm going to throw the javelin. And another girl said, I'm going to throw the discus. Another girl thought she'd like to do the hurdles. When it came around to me, I said, Colonel, how many events are there in this track and field? He said, why, babe? I think there are about nine or ten. I said, well, I'm going to do all of them. Everybody nearly died laughing. I talked like that in those days, and some people thought I was just popping off. But I was serious. It was one of those days in an athlete's life when you know you're just right. You feel you could fly. You're like a feather floating in the air. I wasn't worried about the fact that of the ten individual events on the program, I was entered in eight, including a couple I'd hardly ever done before. The shot put and the discus throw. I was going to be in everything but the 50-yard and the 220-yard dashes. Mrs. Wood and I just did get there in time for the opening ceremonies. They announced each team over the loudspeaker, and then the girls on that team would run out on the track and get a hand. There were over 200 girls there. Some of those squads had 15 or more girls. The Illinois Women's Athletic Club had 22. Then it came time to announce my team. I spurted out there all alone, waving my arms, and you never heard such a roar. It brought out goosebumps all over me. I can feel them now, just thinking about it. Some of the events that afternoon were Olympic trials. Others were just the national AAU events, but they all counted in the team point scoring. So they were all important to me if I was going to bring back the national championship for employer's casualty. For two and a half hours, I was flying all over the place. I'd run a heat in the 80-meter hurdles, and then I'd take one of my high jumps, then I'd go over to the broad jump and take a turn at that. Then they'd be calling me to throw the javelin or put the eight-pound shot. I was in the javelin throw that first day, and it didn't get started until late afternoon. Shadows were coming up all over the stadium, and it was turning pretty cool. We all got out there to warm up. The event started. They had a little flag stuck in the ground out there to show how far the Olympic record was. It was a German flag because... A German girl had set the record. It was some distance short of my own world's record. Well, after the Olympics and the post-Olympics and all that were over, I got back into the old office and basketball routine at Employer's Casualty. I was still liking it. But the pressure got pretty heavy on me during the fall of 1932. 
People kept telling me how I could get rich if I turned professional. That big money talk sounds pretty nice when you're just a kid whose family never had very much money. Now, what I really wanted to do at this point was to become a golfer. I was going to make an appearance at the Dallas ballpark, and they were going to present me an expensive watch. I went by the Cullum and Borum Sporting Goods store there in Dallas one day, and I saw this beautiful set of golf clubs in the window. It was like a girl seeing a mink coat. I was just dying to have those golf clubs, but I couldn't possibly afford to buy them. I went in and handled the clubs and everything. I know they'd have been glad to present me the golf clubs at the ballpark ceremony instead of the watch, which cost about just as much, but it might impair my amateur standing in golf if I accepted those clubs, so I took the watch instead. Early in December of 1932, my name and picture turned up in a newspaper ad with the statement that I liked the new 1933 Dodge Automobile. The southern branch of the Amateur Athletic Union declared me a professional. Now, that would have been fair enough if I'd given my permission for my name to be used in that ad or taken pay for it, but I hadn't. A Dodge man in Dallas had set it up on his own. He didn't realize that it would cause any trouble. I'd already started another basketball season with the employer's casualty Golden Cyclones. This made me ineligible for that. And it meant I couldn't compete in the AAU track meets anymore either. But by then, I decided to turn pro anyway. I started out by doing some work for the Chrysler Motor Company. Chrysler also got a fellow at the Ruthroff and Ryan Advertising Agency to act as my agent and arrange some bookings for me. He got me a contract to start out making stage appearances at the RKO circuit after the auto show was over. I had an 18-minute act. A performer named George Libby was working with me. He'd be up there on the stage to get things started. He'd play the piano and do an Eddie Cantor imitation. Then I'd come down the aisle wearing a real cute Panama hat and a green swagger coat and high-heeled spectators. The idea was that I was just back from Florida. We'd swap a few lines, and then I'd sing a song. After I got through singing, I'd sit down and take my high heels off and put on rubber-soled track shoes. Then I'd remove my coat. I was wearing a red, white, and blue jacket and shorts of silk satin. I'd demonstrate different kinds of athletics. One of the things I did was run on the treadmill. They staged it real nice with a black velvet backdrop and a great big clock to show how fast I was going. They had someone running beside me on another treadmill. At the end, they would forge my treadmill ahead a little bit. I'd break the tape and go on the I was surprised at how good a notice that show got the next day. Before the week was out, I was beginning to enjoy myself. I liked the feeling of that crowd out there. I had bookings after Chicago and Brooklyn and New York. Something at 2500 a week. And yet, it was still in my craw that I wanted to be a champion golfer. I could see I'd never get to do that with all these four and five stage shows a day. I was spending all my time either in the theater or my hotel. And I didn't like having to put that grease paint on for every show. I talked it over with my sister Esther Nancy. We just called her Nancy, though. She said, Babe, honey, you can make a lot of money on this circuit. It's just a question of whether you want to do it. I said, Nancy... I don't want the money if I have to make it this way. I want to live my life outdoors. I want to play golf. When Grantland Rice invited me out to the Brentwood course during the Olympics, I'd never played a round of golf in my life. Granny had three other sports riders with him. 
Paul Galigo and Westbrook Pegler and Braven Dyer. Did it make me self-conscious to be with well-known people like that? Nah. It's never seemed to bother me whether the people I meet are famous or not. All I was worried about was how good they were as golfers. I didn't want to look like a fool on that golf course. Now, while they were having some coffee before we teed off, I excused myself. I said I wanted to change my shoes and borrow some clubs. I ducked out to the pro shop and hunted up Owen Dutra, the Brentwood pro, who won the PGA Championship that year. I said, Mr. Dutra, I'm going to play golf with Granny Rice and Pegler and the boys. I want you to show me how it's supposed to be done, just so I won't look too bad out there. He lent me some clubs, and he showed me as much as he could in a few minutes about the grip and the stance and the swing. He demonstrated how you should pivot when you swing, and he kept telling me, look at the ball real hard. That's the most important thing. I said to Granny, I don't know how to play this game, so don't bet too much money. (laughs) He told me they were just going to play a dollar a hole. After that first drive, they couldn't believe I'd hardly ever swung a golf club before. They said, you must have played a lot of golf. Grantland Rice was playing pretty good golf, so he and I were ahead. As I remember, we were two up coming into the 16th hole. That was a short hole. There was a big dip down from the tee, and then the green was way up on top of a hill. When Paul Galico hit the best tee shot, it looked like he was a cinch to win the hole. So Granny whispered to me, Babe, why don't you challenge Paul to race you down and up that hill? Paul's a real good sport, and he took the dare. Of course I beat him because I was in the peak of condition, but he raced me all the way. He was so winded, he had to lie down on the grass and catch his breath. When he finally got up, he four-putted the green. Granny and I won the hole and the match. Now, I'd thought about being a golfer before, but I think that was the day that really determined me on it. Another fellow I met early in my career was Babe Ruth. I made a point of being introduced to him because he was the original babe, you see. He seemed to take an interest in me, too. He said, Babe, let me give you some advice. I wish someone had told me this when I was your age. I know you're making money, but put some of it away. Get yourself an annuity. In the spring of 1934, after the basketball season had ended, this promoter, Ray Doan, got me to appear with his House of David baseball team. All the players had beards. They booked games all over the country and drew some good crowds. Now, I was an extra attraction to help them draw the crowds. I was the only girl, and I didn't wear a beard. I didn't travel with the team or anything. I hardly even got to know the players. I had my own car, I had the schedule, and I'd get to whatever ballpark they were playing at in time for the next game. I'd pitch the first inning, and then I'd take off and not see them again until the next town. In Florida, before the baseball tour started, I did a little exhibition pitching against some of the major league and minor league teams. One day I was at Bradenton, Florida, where the St. Louis Cardinals were training. They were going to play an exhibition game with the Philadelphia Athletics. I was sitting in the grandstand before the game with Dizzy and Paul Dean of the Cardinals. Jimmy Fox was there, too. Dizzy Dean was always bragging, you know. That is, people call it bragging. Actually, it was just his way. It was Southern Texas talk. Dizzy was good, and he knew it. He'd say, I'm going to do something big, and then go ahead and do it. Well, we were talking there, and the fellows were kidding each other back and forth. There was a little rib steak going on. And Dizzy says to Jimmy Fox, we'll pitch Babe against you, and I'll bet you that me and Paul and Babe can beat you guys. So it wound up with me pitching the first inning for the Cardinals. Frankie Frisch was managing the team then, 
and he was a fellow to enjoy a stunt like that. They put Paul Dean out in left field because he was going to come in anyway and pitch after I finished. Pretty soon, the bases were loaded with none out. Those bases got loaded on hits, not walks. I always had pretty good control. I seldom walked anybody, but I couldn't seem to throw the ball past these major leaguers. The next batter hit a line drive, but it turned into a double play and nobody scored. That brought up Jimmy Fox. There was a big grove of orange trees out back of left field. I don't suppose many balls were hit that far, but with the girl pitching and Jimmy Fox batting, Paul Dean wasn't taking any chances. He was backed up almost to the edge of the orange grove, and Jimmy Fox hit a ball deep into those trees. Paul Dean turned and started running back. He disappeared right into the orange grove. A couple of moments later, he came trotting out. He was holding his glove for everyone to see. There was a baseball and about five oranges in it. That's how we made the third out, and that was enough pitching for me that day. Golf was still my real objective. All I wanted to accomplish with these other things was to get in a financial position where I could concentrate on golf. That was my big sports love now. Bobby Jones came to Texas to play an exhibition at the Houston Country Club, and I traveled all the way from Dallas to see him. He'd turned professional since making his Grand Slam of the British and American Amateur and Open Tournaments in 1930. Oh, he was a great idol of mine. I sat down with Bobby at the Golf Riders Dinner in New York not too long ago, and I asked him if he remembered playing that exhibition in Houston. He said, yes, I remember. We got rained out there. And that's what happened. He just got to play a couple of holes, and the rain ended the round. Oh, it was such a disappointment to me. Even in the short time I got to watch him, though, I was impressed by the way he stepped up there on the tee and slugged the ball. He was out to hit the ball just as hard as he could. And that's always been my kind of golf. I saw that Bobby Jones exhibition a short time after my summer of baseball with the House of David. Seeing Jones sort of fired up my own golf ambitions. An employer's casualty helped to make it possible for me to get going on golf again. They not only gave me my job back one more time, they got me a membership at the Dallas Country Club and paid for my lessons there. I spent practically all my spare hours out there. In November of 1934, I decided to find out how much progress I was making by entering my first golf tournament, the Fort Worth Women's Invitation. I went out there for the qualifying round. Somebody asked me how I thought I'd do, and I said, I think I'll shoot a 77. I said things like that in those days. And I wasn't trying to be smart, it was just what was in my mind at the time. And that's the sort of thing that can make you famous if it comes true. And it came true that day. I played my 18 holes and my score was exactly 77. That made me the medalist for the tournament. The next best score was 82. It did me good to see the headlines in the Texas newspapers that day. It was like 1932 all over again. I was on top of the world that day. It had taken me longer than I originally figured to get going in golf, but I was rolling at last. I had the Texas championship, and now I was ready to shoot for the national championship. I already had my entry in for the Southern Women's Amateur at Louisville. Two days later, the newspapers reported that the United States Golf Association was looking into my case to see whether I should be allowed to play in any more amateur tournaments. It seemed they had complaints from some people who thought that because I'd done professional things in athletics, I didn't belong in amateur golf. On May 14th, the bottom dropped out of everything. 
I did back there in 1935 was to sign a contract with a sporting goods company, P. Goldsmith Sons. Later, they merged with McGregor Golf Company, and that became the brand name for their golf equipment. Goldsmith paid me a retainer of $2,500 a year and brought out a line of women's golf clubs in my name, just as if I was already Bobby Jones or something. And I got booked for a series of exhibition matches with Gene Sarazen, who was the top man in the business at the time. I'd had several boyfriends as a youngster, but when I met George Zaharias at the 38 Los Angeles Open, I knew this was it. I still wasn't thinking about marriage when I entered the Los Angeles Open Tournament in 1938. I was 23 then. The Los Angeles Open is one of the regular tournaments on the men's circuit, but there was no rule that said a woman couldn't play in it, so I got in there. I knew I wasn't going to beat the top men's pros, but I was still trying to establish myself as the greatest woman golfer. I wasn't the only one who didn't have any business being in the tournament. There were some fellows who were good part-time golfers, but not in a class with the real pros. One of the Los Angeles sports writers said, Babe, come on over here and meet your partners. I want our photographer to get a picture of the three of you. What an introduction George and I had. One minute we were saying hello, and the next minute photographers were crowding around and calling for him to put wrestling holds on me. He put his arm around me, pretending to apply neck holds and stuff. I didn't mind at all. We drove off the first tee. As I walked down the fairway, I kept looking back at George, and he seemed to sort of be watching me. George was 29 years old then. He was husky and black-haired and handsome. His parents were Greek. The sports writers called him the Crying Greek from Cripple Creek, which was a Colorado town, but George actually came from Pueblo in Colorado. A lot of great golf was played the first day of that 1938 Los Angeles Open, but practically all the gallery went with George Zaharias, Party Erdman, and myself. Those people didn't see too much good golf, and my mind didn't seem to be on my game. As I left, George called out, I'll be seeing you tomorrow. Less than a year later, we were married in St. Louis. As a professional in 1948, I found that there were a few more tournaments open to me than when I'd first played back as a pro in the 1930s. I even tried to enter the Men's National Open, but the United States Golf Association wouldn't let me. They issued a statement. As the championship has always been intended to be for men, the eligibility rules have been rephrased to confirm that condition. Thus, the USGA has declined an informal entry submitted in behalf of Mrs. George Zaharias. I don't suppose I'd have finished around the top if they'd let me in there, but I don't think I'd have been at the bottom either. I wouldn't have disgraced myself, that's for sure. In 1948, I did get to play and win both women's divisions at Tarno Shanter. I also won the National Women's Open. But all this while something else was happening. It started in 1948. Coming home on a plane, I suddenly had this terrific pain in my left side. There was just a big swelling there. Then the pain stopped after a while and the swelling went down. It went on like that for several years. The pain and the swelling would come and then it would go. I'd say to myself, I should see a doctor about this, but I'm too busy right now. I'll have to put it off for a while. A little rest always seemed to fix me right up. A good hot bath, a good night's sleep, and I'd be ready to go again. I kept on playing, and I did my share of winning. In 1949, I was first again in my prize money. 
The total only came to 4,300. Our ladies' PGA was just getting underway. My tournament victories included the Tarno Shanter World Championship and the Eastern Women's Open. In 1950, I had a real good year. I won just about all the top tournaments, both the All-American and the World at Tarno Shanter, the National Women's Open at Wichita, the Women's Title Holders in Augusta, and the Western Women's Open at Denver. I was on top in money winnings again, this time with $13,550. In 1951, I scored another double at Tarno Shanter, which helped put me at the head of the money list once more. The total this time was $15,087. I started off as if I was going to have the same sort of year in 1952. I was up around the top in every tournament I played. Again, I was the leading women's money winner as we came to the end of April. But now that trouble in my left side was really getting to me. The pain and the swelling came more often, and I couldn't seem to shake off the attacks as fast as I had before. We moved up the west coast for the third leg of the weather vane at Seattle. This was in May. Well, those 36 holes were just agony for me. I finished 11th, which was the worst I'd ever done in a metal play tournament. George urged me to drop out after the first 18 holes, but somehow I got around the course the last day, and I was really dragging. I hoped that the rest would straighten me out again, but after a day or two, I gave up. The pain was so bad now, I couldn't stand it any longer. I told George, I think I'd better go to a hospital, and he said, I think so too. Well, what I'd had all this time was ephemeral hernia. Dr. Tatum told me that if I'd let it go another week, I might have been a goner. Now, the operation came off fine. I went back to our home in Tampa and began picking up right away. It would be a while before my operation mended enough for me to go back to the golf tournaments, but I chipped and putted a little. I did get to Tarn O'Shanter in time to enter the world. They'd taken to calling this tournament the Babes of Harry's Benefit because I'd won it all the four times it had been held. Well, for a while there in 1952, it seemed that I might make it five in a row. I'd had a pretty good round the first day, and also the second day. Then I began to tire. I did all right the third day on the outgoing nine holes, but tailed off coming back. The fourth day again, it was the same. I had a good chance to win after nine holes. Then I ran out of gas again and wound up third. Back home in Tampa, I practiced some more and kept feeling better. The Texas Women's Open that October was being held at the Rivercrest Country Club in Fort Worth. It's a short course. Rivercrest was where my record streak of 17 straight tournaments got broken back in the fall of 1947. That course had whipped me just about every time I'd competed there. I said to George, I'm going to go down and beat that golf course. So I went there about a week ahead in practice. I did whip the course, and I won the tournament. It felt wonderful. Then I came back to Tampa, and before long, I wasn't feeling wonderful anymore. November and December are the months when the tournament circuit closes down, and you figure on taking it easy and getting your pet back. But it wasn't working that way for me this time. Mostly the thing was that I seemed to be tired all the time. When I played a round of golf, I never felt like I wanted to play another nine holes, which I generally did in the past. In January, I came back as usual for the 1953 tournament circuit. I wasn't winning much of anything. Half the time, I wasn't even finishing the first five. I'd shoot a good round or a good nine holes, and then I'd tire. On March 9th in Florida, 
I placed second to Patty Berg in the Jacksonville Women's Open. The next week, I dropped down to sixth place in the women's title holders. I was just feeling worse and worse. George was getting more and more worried. He was with me the week after that during the Peach Blossom Betsy Rawls tournament in Spartanburg, South Carolina. I just about made it through the last 18 holes and finished completely out of the running. George made a doctor's appointment for me right then and there in Spartanburg. I talked him out of it. I'll be all right once I get a good night's sleep, I said. In another couple of weeks, the tour will hit Beaumont. I was really determined to make a good show in there because this was my hometown and the tournament had been created in honor of me, the Babes of Harry's Open. Now, I'll never know where I got the energy to play that tournament. It was three rounds of metal play instead of the regular four rounds, which was a good thing for me. I doubt that I could have played a fourth that day. The first two days, I put together about the best pair of rounds I'd shot on the whole winter tour. I took the lead with 142 strokes under par, and I practically exhausted myself doing it. The last day, it was more of an effort to play than ever. I wasn't in command of my shots the way I'd been the first two rounds. I lost three strokes to par on the outgoing nine. By the time we'd reached the 16th, I was four strokes over. Then I was able to birdie the 16th and get one of those strokes back. I saw my buddy, Betty Dodd, standing there when I came off the 16th green. I asked her, how do I stand with the field? Some golfers don't like to be told, but I always feel that I play better when I know what I have to do. Betty told me, all you've got to do is to get two pars to win. Well, I missed my par on the 17th hole. I knocked the ball up on the green about 12 feet from the cup. And then I went and three-putted. I hit my first putt about four feet beyond the hole and missed again coming back. Now I needed a par on the 18th to tie for first place or a birdie to win. The 18th was a par four hole. I felt as though I was crawling on my hands and knees by now. I got up there on the tee and pulled myself together and slugged the ball with all my might. And I hooked it over behind a tree. One more bad shot and I was going to blow this tournament. But I managed to come up with one more good shot. I took an iron and carried that ball onto the green about six feet from the pin. Then I knocked in my putt for the birdie I needed to win. That hometown gallery went wild. Betty Dodd and Patty Berg and some of the other girls rushed onto the green and lifted me up into the air. They practically carried me off to the clubhouse. Television cameras were going and everything. I should have been in a mood for celebrating, but I wasn't. As soon as I could get away, I went right up to my room and stretched out on the bed. I'd never felt so completely played out. This was on a Sunday night. On Monday morning, I had that appointment with Dr. Tatum. He had me get up on the examination table. He checked on the operation I'd had the year before and said, Well, everything seems to be all right. Then he probed around some more. I could see his face out of the corner of my eye. All of a sudden, he just turned white. He didn't say a word. I guess I'd suspected all along what my trouble was. I said to him, I've got cancer, haven't I? One of those early days, I got out of my bed myself and walked over to the golf clubs. I picked out a four-wood and took my grip on it, and it felt real good. In January of 1954, I was back on the tour. I started out by placing seventh in the Tampa Women's Open. Then, at St. Petersburg, I tied for first place with Beverly Hansen. We had a sudden-death playoff, and she outlasted me. She won it on the third extra hole. So the tour moved on to Miami Beach on February for the Serbia Women's Open. At this point, 10 months had gone by since my operation. People were beginning to ask each other whether I'd ever be capable of winning tournaments again. And I was asking myself the same thing. 
I found myself battling for first place right down to the wire with Patty Berg. We both were two strokes under for the first three rounds. On the outgoing nine holes the last day, we both hit par on the nose. I began tiring again on the back nine, but for every hole where I slipped over par, it was another where I made it up with the birdie. I came up to the last tee even with par for that day and needed one more par to beat out Patty Berg. Whew. The last hole was a long one, a par five, and I hit my drive all the way over in the palm trees. I was in a real tough spot. There were palm leaves hanging down almost to the ground in front of me, and then there was a trap beyond them. I saw I'd have to hit the ball right into those palm leaves if I was going to carry over the trap and get some distance. I took a four iron and swung, and that shot came off exactly as I planned. It busted a hole right through the palm leaves and carried to within a nine iron of the green. It landed on a sandy part of the fairway, then I played a three-quarter shot with my nine iron. I've never studied a shot more carefully and blasted the ball onto the green. I got down in two putts, all right to make my par and win my first tournament since the cancer operation. And that was just about my biggest thrill in sports. At the end of July 1955, I got some bad news. They spotted a trace of the new cancer on the right side of my sacrum, which is the rear part of the pelvis. So x-ray treatments were started. The doctors said it would be a three to six months before I could get back to the golf tournaments. And just as in 1953, a lot of people were doubting that I would ever get back in competition. As far as I was concerned, there was no doubt about my coming back again. With the love and support of my many friends I have made, how could I miss? They have helped me hurdle one obstacle after another, and any success I have had is due to a great extent to their devotion and consideration. Right now, I want to thank them one and all, as well as the many unknown people who have befriended me and helped me along the way. Winning has always meant much to me, but winning friends has meant the most. In the future... Maybe I'll have to limit myself to just a few of the most important tournaments each year, but I expect to be shooting for championships for a good many years to come. My autobiography isn't finished yet. Mildred L. Babe Didrikson Zaharias succumbed to colon cancer on September 27, 1956. She was 45 years old. This has been a special edition of the Truly the Goat Sports History Podcast. Voice work for this episode was by Rachel Wong. To find us online, visit trulythegoats.com. On Twitter and Facebook, we're at Truly the Goats. For more like-minded shows, be sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com. Like the man says, it's your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. Babe Didrikson Zaharias' autobiography, This Life That I Have Led, is in the public domain and may be downloaded for free at trulythegoats.com slash babebio. The Truly the Goats theme song is Fun on Street, greatest remix of all time, and is produced by David Liso of Dynamo Stairs. Music used in this episode includes Pine Top Spookie Woogie by Pine Top Smith, Begin the Begoying by Artie Shaw and his orchestra, Step Out with a Smile by Jonathan Boyle, Before I Ever Loved You by Cooper Moore, and Good Day 
by Serge Quadrado. The latter two tracks are available through Fair Use Agreement via freemusicarchive.org. This is Oz Davis for Truly the Goats and the Sports History Network reminding you to keep that perspective.